0: Seeing the children out there playing and hearing about God's word. we're well, good morning, Grace. Uh, for those who are guests here today, my name is Travis Fleming. I am the teaching pastor here at Village Bible Church Grace Campus. And I uh, invite you to turn with me in your Bibles if you have one. If not, just listen in to the book of Psalms, which is right in the middle of your Bible. And today we are in Psalm 46. And it's interesting as we we saw how VBS progressed, we were a little bit nervous as we stand at the end of it, but at the beginning of the week, it didn't look so good. I don't know if you remember Monday morning, what happened Monday morning? Big storm came in. And if you live in the Midwest, storms are part and parcel of what it means to be here. We know that they're coming, we know that they can wreak a lot of havoc and danger, I mean, with. Power lines being brought down, trees, maybe it was that way in your neighborhood. I know with my children, when they see the storm coming, I mean, my, my kids are always going, Daddy, is that, a, is that a funnel cloud? Is that a storm coming? What's going on? And, and a little bit nervous, because it happens a lot. If you have ever spent any time in the Midwest, you know that they happen all the time. I remember even debating with my wife before we were really trying to figure out where we were going to live. I said, are we going to be in Florida, because my wife's from Florida, or from Illinois? I said, I don't want to live in Florida because you've got all the hurricanes. And she's like, well, I don't want to really be in Illinois because you've got all the tornadoes. And I said, but hurricanes destroy, like, the whole state. And she's like, but the difference is we have weeks to prepare. In, in, in the Midwest, you just have sometimes minutes and seconds. Isn't that right? I mean, these storms come, and, and we got to be prepared. And I've grown up with it, so I'm used to it. And just like she's grown up with the hurricanes, she's used to it. But the question is, is what do you do when the storm comes in? I mean, what does your family do? When you hear the sirens go off, where do you go? I know for our family, there's been times where the the sirens have gone off. And instinctively, we grab the kids and we go right down into the basement because we know that's a great shelter. It's a refuge, a place to, to wait it out as we go into the midst of this storm. You know, there are going to be many metaphorical storms that come into our lives when you find out the medical report says it's cancer. Or when you, you, you hear the boss say, I'm sorry, we got to lay you off, or you're fired. Or perhaps when your mate says, this marriage is over, or maybe the engagement's off. I'm sorry, you've, you've, you've lost your license, you've lost your job, it's over. I mean, there are so many different situations in life in which we find ourselves. There are always, there's always a crisis or a time of trouble that's just waiting beyond the horizon. The question is, is what do we do when the storms of life roll in? Where do we go? You know, the, the book that we're in, as I mentioned just a moment ago, is the book of Psalms. The Psalms is probably one of the most realistic books in the entire Bible. As we've learned in past weeks, is that the book of Psalms was the, the hymn book, the song book, of the ancient nation of Israel. And it's a compilation of songs and poems written by different individuals that have gone through just terrible, sometimes, circumstances of life. Just as we like certain songs because in some way we find ourselves, we identify with the lyrics of a song. I mean, you know that. Think about your favorite songs. Why are they your favorite songs? I mean, especially when you were teenagers. I mean, teenagers are always listening to the radio. There's always songs we find we, I can identify with. And the book of Songs, though, is, is God's songs to us that we can supremely identify how we can pursue God in the midst of life's different situations. So we see a lot of different emotions represented. We see life lived just, just real, right in front of us. I mean, there's no, there's no masking it. There are people that cry out in the Psalms, How long, O oh Lord? How long? What's going on? Crying out for justice. They're not putting on a mask. That's what I love about the Psalms. It's intensely real and, and representing the full spectrum of life. Now, the psalm that we have before us today is Psalm 46. And it's it's written for those who are... are, are it's like a how-to manual on what to do when the storms come. It's, it's where we go and how we are to where we are to go to, and how we are to look at life. So God has laid out for us within this psalm the tools that are necessary, or even the procedures, the steps of, of we need to take in order to find peace in the midst of the storm. So hopefully you've turned with me to the book of Psalms. It is our, our tradition here at Village Bible Church, Grace Campus, to stand for the reading of God's Word. So I would invite you to please stand with me as I read. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version, Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength, very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress, Selah. Come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still. Be still. And know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Let's pray. Father, we come into your presence today. Many of us are going through our own storm of life. And Lord, whether we're going through a storm, coming out of a storm, or know someone that's going through a storm, Lord, may your word lay forth before us today on how we are to go through the storm in a way that is honoring and glorifying to you and in which we can find peace. So, Lord, I pray for each individual's heart to be open to what it is that you have to say to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Now, let's start with the info at the top of the psalm. Sometimes we skip over that, we did a little bit today, but I'd like to draw your attention to because I find that when we look at the context in which something was written and some of these little details that we sometimes miss, we miss out something that's very important. As I mentioned before, it says that this is a song, this says to the choir master, so in essence, it's written to, this little note is written to the choir master on how this song is to be sung. In essence. So it's written to ancient Israel during what we call the temple period. When the temple was standing and they had individuals that were that their job was to sing praise to God all the time. And they had this different arrangement of music. And here there's a song for them to sing. So we have to the choir master of the sons of Korah. Now the sons of Korah, according to the book of Chronicles, were individual harp players that served in the temple. They assisted other people in the temple. So it's written to these instrumentalists on how this song is to be sung, according to the Alamoth. Now, if you, it, it's a, sometimes some think it's a musical or a liturgical term, but some also believe that it comes from the word Alma, which is a Hebrew term that means young woman or virgin. In essence, he's saying there that it's written to the sopranos. That's what it's saying. This is, it's a musical term. So it's saying it's according to the Alamoth, a song. So it's to the sopranos. Now, some believe that this song was to be sung what we call antiphonally. Which means that there is a, a women's choir on one side, and there's a men's choir on the other, and there's calling back and forth as they're singing together. So this was to be sung as a uh, sung as a song of praise, and it, it, he's writing this to the women on how they are to sing this different song that's here. Okay. Now, it's, the circumstance surrounding this psalm is a little bit murky. It's not given exactly to us as some psalms are. Some psalms are given these little precursor on what exactly was going on. Scholars debate. I mean, we know it's during the temple period. And we know that the psalm is calling for God to be praised in the midst of a tragedy, in, a, in the midst of a difficulty. And it talks about the city of God, which we're going to learn about momentarily. But the city of God in ancient Israel is referring to the city of Jerusalem, sometimes allegorically called Mount Zion. And it's saying that God is in the midst of her. She can't be moved. In essence, there's an invasion, possibly, that's going on around it. It could be, uh, historically, it could have been the Babylonians. Well, it couldn't have been the Babylonians, but the Assyrians. That's the only circumstance around it. The nation was coming against them. They were worried because this big, giant army was right outside the walls. And they're to be singing praise to God. And it would be empower the people to say, if God is in the midst of us, then we can't be moved. Now that could be the circumstance, we're not exactly sure. But we do know that we can look at it from the New Testament perspective, of which we are beneficiaries, in that we know who Jesus Christ is. Jesus Christ is God's Son. He's the fulfillment of all the promises that were given to ancient Israel. He is the God of the Old Testament in essence. And we know that when we have Christ in our life, that we can't be moved. We have a kingdom that the Word of God says that cannot be shaken, can't be taken away from us that it's God's heavenly kingdom and that we are unshaken. Now this psalm starts off and I'd like you to stay with me if you have your Bible in front of you. Starts off with this. God is our refuge and strength and a very present help in time of trouble. Now what we see here is God is our refuge and strength. He's saying in essence when times of trouble come, we want you God says to you Run to God. He's a very present help. He is a refuge to run to God. Where do you go when the times of trouble come, when the storms of life roll in? You know, many, oftentimes, we don't run to God. I mean, where are you not to run when the storm comes in? Under trees, power lines, you know, stuff like that. But so often, when the storms of life come in, that's exactly where we go. We go to everything else but God. But here God's saying that he is, uh, God is a refuge. Now the word refuge here literally means a place to flee to. It's a place to flee to. In the Old Testament, there were what was known as the cities of refuge. Now it's a term that's not very familiar, I would say, to most of us. But the cities of refuge were refuge uh, cities. There were six cities in ancient Israel. After they had conquered what was the promised land, or most of it anyway, God established these six cities. Cities of refuge that where individuals could go if they accidentally killed somebody. See, remember in the Old Testament, there was a, the, the term, uh, actually, the, the law we call now in Latin, it's called lex talionis. You ever heard of that term before? But I, You may not have heard the term. Uh, it means literally law of retaliation, but you've heard this, an eye an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a life for a life, Right? That is the lex talionis, the law of retaliation. And in ancient Israel, that if you were to lose your, some way, like I would injure Marcy over here, and you would lose your eye, then I was to lose my eye in return. It's the law of retaliation. That's how it was. If I were to to knock out your tooth, then I was to lose my tooth. If I were to kill you, I was to lose my life as well. It's the law of retaliation. Now, the question is, is how did you, what what would have happened if I accidentally killed somebody? Like, say, for instance, that someone was out working in the field. They were chopping wood with an axe. And say my brother was out there. And the the guy flung his axe back. The axe head comes off, hits my brother, and kills him. Now, I'm his nearest blood relative. It is my responsibility, I would be now called the avenger of blood, is to kill that man. And it was perfectly within the bounds of the law if he killed my brother. So this guy knew that he he could be killed. So he had a place to go and fully where I couldn't touch him. Where he could say, sanctuary, in essence. And he could run to the city of refuge, and I couldn't go in and, and kill him. And he was safe there. I could not touch him. However, if he were to step out of the city lines, and I found him, I could kill him, and I wouldn't have any penalty whatsoever. Now, that's if he did it without intent. If someone murdered someone with intent, they were to be executed immediately. Now, he would uh, that individual, he would stay in that re- city of refuge until what the Bible says is the death of the high priest, who was the, the ruling leader, religious leader, at that period of time. When he died, then this individual could leave the city of refuge and return home, and I couldn't touch him. So, um, he could not leave, though, until that time. He had to live there with those people, because he would be in fear of me, the avenger of blood. Now, what we're seeing here is, is David is saying that that God is a, not David, but the the psalmist is saying that God is a refuge and that we can run to Him in the time of trouble. It's not just when when we don't need it. It's it's saying here, when a crisis comes, you can run to God. God is our refuge, a very present help in time of trouble. You can run to Him. You've you've messed up. You've sinned. And you're suffering the consequences. And God is saying, you can run to me. I'm a very present help help in time of trouble. Now, what that means is this. It means that God is accessible to you. God is accessible. I mean, think about that. God himself is making himself accessible to you. I mean, God will never put you on hold. He will never be too busy. His schedule will never be too filled that he can squeeze you in. You can always go to him. He is saying that I am... I. Come to me. I want you to come to me. So God is completely accessible to us. That's an amazing thought, that God is accessible to us. Now, He's not only accessible, but He is approved. He's approved. Now, when the text says that He is a very present help, it means more than that He's just near to us and He's accessible to us. The word help here means aid assistance. The word trouble could cover all that came upon us which would give us anxiety or sorrow. The word rendered present means is found or has been found. That is, He has been proven Himself to be a help in time of trouble. I mean, that's amazing. He's proven to be a help in a time of trouble. God has proven Himself to be dependable. And as a matter of fact, it's written emphatically so. He's greatly and passionately desires that we come to Him whenever we are in trouble. He desires to show Himself to be God on our behalf. He's proven. That's amazing to me. He's proven. Well, how does that work out? I, I was thinking this past week I'd ordered a book from Amazon. Some of you have done that, ordered a book. And, and sometimes, I, I, you know, I'm cheap, so I'm trying to get a, a, a used book. I don't want to pay full price for a book. So I look for a used book. And, and when you put the book in and on, the, on, the, on the webpage, and it shows up all these different sellers that are willing to sell that book. And then it has ratings by them. You can get up to five stars. And then it will say after that what the percentage is. So they could say, for instance, they receive maybe five stars, and they get an 87% approval rating, and that's based on 1,200 respondents over the last 12 months. Now, right immediately below that is is a group that has a 99% rating, And there's 127,000 respondents. So it proves that this, this bookseller is much more reliable. They're proven. They've been over time. People have let individuals know that. Now with God, he's got 100%, five stars, and it goes over millions of people. Millions of people can say, give their feedback and say, he's completely trustworthy. He has shown himself. He has proven it time and time again. God delivers the goods. That He is a very present help in time of need. He's approved. He never fails. That's amazing. I mean, each of us know what failures like, but God doesn't. He is amazing and He is awesome. Look at how awesome He is. Verse 2, Therefore we will not fear, though the earth gives way. An earthquake has come. That's what's going on here. The earth gives way. I mean, people talk about going through tornadoes and hurricanes, but an earthquake, it levels everything. I mean, think about the earthquakes that we've seen in in the United States. I mean, some we've had some here, they're just little little tremors. But imagine being in California and driving on the freeway when the road goes out. I mean, the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Mountains within the ancient world were considered the dwelling places of certain deities, certain gods. There would be, And all the followers of that deity would go to that mountain to worship that deity. And here's saying even the mountains, all these earthly deities, they, they come and fall, they fail. All of these earthly gods that we give credence to, they're going to be cast into the heart of the sea. Now the sea is, is always a word for chaos. The ancient world, it was complete chaos. The sea was just, it could just, you know, the waves could come up in a moment. It could be capsized. I mean, people were completely susceptible to any and whatever the weather did. So he's saying here, even these deities, these so-called gods are being cast into the midst of the sea. Though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, Selah. Now, look at that last word, Selah. No one is exactly sure what it means. It's probably a musical or liturgical term that means pause. The Amplified Bible translates it like this. Pause and think of that. I like that. In other words, stop and think what was just written. Think about that for a moment. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way. The psalmist is saying, stop and realize that we don't have... Any need to fear, even though there's an earthquake, even though the the mountains seem to be collapsing, all of these other things that we relied on in life, even though chaos seems to abound around us, those who truly trust in God will have a peace that transcends all understanding. In other words, God is completely and entirely awesome. If you've ever been around me for any period of time, I don't use that word lightly. I use it in reference to God, because to me, He is the only one who is awesome. I mean, only God Himself can control the heavens and the earth. Only God Himself can change the heart of an individual. Only God Himself can transform our situations and take the burdens that we face and make them into blessings. Only God can do this. Can do that because we can run to him in our time of need. And when the waters foam around us, we can rest in his redemption. We can rest in his redemption. As Paul said, if God is for us, what can man do to us? Or who can be against us? Man could take a lot, take away a lot from us in life, and Satan can war against us, but he cannot take away our salvation. If you've come to Christ. Then He saves you and He seals you. He puts you into the palm of His hand and no one can snatch them out of His hand. Look at verse 4. In veiled imagery, we read about our redemption and the fact that it is secure. The psalmist writes, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. Now what is the river whose streams make Goliath the city of God? And what is the city of God? As I mentioned earlier, he's referring to Jerusalem, also known as Mount Zion. That is the place, the city where His name dwells. It is the holy habitation of the Most High. It's the name where God has placed His name forever. However, His manifest presence was removed when the nation disobeyed. His name is still there, but His manifest, His hand of blessing... Is, is not there when the nation disobeyed and reject his lordship, his sovereignty. So here's what it's saying, is that as long as man continually relies on God, it will be impossible for them to be removed. So when God is in the midst of her, in that when the people are depending upon God, you're immovable. So no matter what circumstance you face in life, no matter what your spouse says to you, no matter what your job, no matter what the economy dictates, is that if you are a believer in Christ, that it will not affect you. Now that doesn't mean that you're not going to go through trials and tribulations, pains, problems, it doesn't mean that. It means that you will have peace and security in your inner person in the midst of it. That God will be your anchor. Even we saw, he says that God is our refuge and strength. What that means is is that, in essence, if you don't have enough strength to go on, and His strength will become your strength. That's a pretty amazing concept to think about. God is giving you His strength. He will enable you to go through that trial or tribulation. Now we can see, though, that the city is not just referring to the city of Jerusalem. As we've talked about, there are sometimes double meanings or second meanings within the Psalms, and here we have one. Because even if it were just talking about Jerusalem, we would have a problem understanding what the river is whose streams make glad the city of God. There is no river that's going into Jerusalem. There is a waterway that is actually underneath the city, but that wasn't constructed for some time. I've actually walked through. It's called Hezekiah's Tunnel. It's underground, and when the the Israelites were were being besieged. In essence, they constructed a way to get water into the city without anybody knowing. But here it's referring to something even more a river whose streams make glad the city of God. What is it then? What is this river that the psalmist is talking about? Now, I believe it to be the same river that is mentioned in the book of Revelation, chapter 22, verse 1 through 2. This is the Apostle John writes. He says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. Brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Now the river flows from the throne of God. So the river uh, the psalmist is referring to is the Holy Spirit. He is that river, as Jesus said. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. In John chapter 4, as Jesus is meeting with the Samaritan woman. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. In essence, he's referring to salvation that will grow up within an individual. Now, when we are saved, God places his Holy Spirit within us to help teach us and how to to apply the word of God. Jesus said in John chapter 7, verse 37, He expands this concept. Jesus, if anyone thirsts, as Jesus says, let him come to Me and drink. Whoever believes in Me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this He said about the Spirit whom those who believed in Him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now this doesn't mean that the Spirit of God was not working within the Old Testament. It would come upon certain individuals. But I believe it to be a veiled imagery, pointing forward to our redemption that is found in Christ, that we have the Spirit of God within us. In other words, the Holy Spirit is the river of life. But what is the city of God? Could it be more than Mount Zion? Yes. Yes. Just as the city of Babylon can mean more than the regular physical city, but the city of the evil of men, this earthly fallen world, it is the epitome of that, the representative of it, so too can the city of God refer to more than the physical city of Jerusalem, but the city representative of God's rule. Now the book of Hebrews talks of this city. In referring to Abraham, the author of Hebrews wrote, "...for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations... Whose designer and builder is God. There is a heavenly city, one that God has prepared for those that love Him, Hebrews 11:16. It is a city where God manifestly dwells. Now where does God dwell right now? In us. If you are a believer in Christ, God's spirit is in you, and you are now God's temple. That's amazing to think about. We are God's temple. We are temples of God. And we can only be temples if we receive His Holy Spirit, and we only receive His Holy Spirit if we trust in Him for salvation. In other words, when we are saved, God gives His Spirit to us, and we can rest in God's redemption. We can rest in who He is, that He is the Savior of the world. Now, we must understand that you have God's Spirit in you. That's the river. In order, as we go through these these trials and tribulations, these storms of life, rest in the fact that you are saved and God's Spirit is in you. Rest in that. Don't freak out. Rest in the fact that God's Spirit is in you. The holy habitation of the city of God is not just Jerusalem or Mount Zion, but God's people generally. His Spirit dwells in us as members of His church. Rest in His redemption, knowing that His Spirit is in you, also and that His saints are with you. God's people are to help bear the burden of our struggles and pain. He's in the midst of that city. And that city is the the understanding of God's people entirely. So share your burdens with other people, that other saints of God are going to come alongside you. I'm amazed at uh, at an individual we have in our our fellowship, lost his job recently, uh, resigning over an injustice that had transpired. And... uh, As he was leaving the place of employment, wondering what was going to happen in the future, he took solace in the fact he said, God loves me, my small group cares for me, and I have a church that loves me. And I I was struck by that as I was talking to him because I realized that it's a working out of this principle that the saints of God, they had built such great relationships in that small group that he knew that those individuals would be there for him, would love him through this would care for Him, that would help Him, that would pray for Him, that would encourage Him, that would love on Him. I mean, that's the power of of being together with the people of God. I love that. We all need that. We need that encouragement. Do you need encouragement? Do you need someone to be able to share your feelings, your trials, your tribulations, your pains, your problems, your secrets and your suffering? Do you need someone? I mean, so often we think of ourselves as islands. That we don't need other people. No, we do. God Himself builds that bridge for us to connect us together. Because we need one another. Because it's God's Spirit working through God's people that can help us in our time of need. But it's not just that the group is for you. Remember, whenever you go through a trial, God is your helper. He is there as a support for you. That's the second part of verse 5. God will help her when morning dawns. It's a curious phrase. It literally means in the faces of the morning, God will help or protect you in the faces of the morning. Which means that God will protect you whenever the situation requires it. The term literally means when the countenance turns one way to the other. In essence, when the morning dawns, God will be there. But it also could say if it's the evening, God will be there. If anything were to happen, God will be there for you. He is your helper. God is your helper. God is pro-you. Most of all, He's pro-Himself. And He desires to help you because He desires to show Himself to be God on your behalf, that He might receive glory and that you might increase in joy. God will be there for you. Even as the nations rage. Even as unbelievers rage and try to redefine truth. And the kingdoms of the earth totter. God shows Himself to be God on our behalf. He is the one who is with us and is our fortress. I'm amazed at that. I've been reading recently, and I shared this a while back, uh, a biography on Dietrich Bonhoeffer who was a martyr during World War II. He was a German pastor and the leader of what was known as the Confessing Church. The Confessing Church was the church that stood out in the midst of Germany because the German church largely abandoned the Christian faith and adopted Hitler's racist uh, theology, ideology, and made its own theology in supporting what was known as the Aryan paragraph, that those who were white, blonde-haired, blue-eyed would be the the masters of the world. And Bonhoeffer stood out against it. And he even quotes, a mighty fortress is our God. And he, he knew that God would bring that kingdom, the Third Reich, down. And God's kingdom would stand no matter what. Even if it meant giving his life for that fact. He took rest in it. That's amazing to me that someone could stand against such, such hostility. Even if it meant giving his own life for it. Because he knew that God was his ever-present help in time of need. God is his fortress. His fortress. We must not forget the truth of the, these verses. That God will help us in our time of need. It has been said that man doesn't need so much to be taught as to be reminded. We need to remember who God is. We, like ancient Israel before us, have a tendency to let our circumstances dictate our theology. We must make sure to remind ourselves who God is and what He has done. As it says in verse 8, Come, behold the works of the Lord, how He has brought desolations on the earth. Remember, what God has revealed to us of Himself through His Word. We must remember God's revelation. That is found within the Word of God. What God has done through time. Think about it. When we think about what God has done through time, we can find rest in the middle of that. Because we know that God is more powerful. God is greater than our circumstances. God is more powerful than anything else that we will ever encounter in our lives. He is powerful. Look at verse 6. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice and the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Who else can utter their voice and the earth melts? I mean, I've seen some bad singers that could possibly break windows. But I've never seen someone that could utter their voice that makes the buildings collapse. Someone that has that much power. Who can utter his voice and the earth melts? Who has that kind of power? God is the only one who can speak, and the universe even comes into existence. Read the first few chapters of Genesis, and you will get a glimpse, a small glimpse into the power of God at work. He is the one who speaks, and things enter into existence that had not otherwise existed. I enjoy reading the Chronicles of Narnia. In the very first book of the series, The Magician's Nephew, the children are allowed to witness creation happening in Narnia. As they enter into this complete blackness, they can't see their hands in front of their faces. It's just complete black. But they're with Aslan, the Christ figure. And Aslan begins to sing. He begins to sing. And then what happens, Lewis, C.S. Lewis, the author of this, describes it as this. He says, then two wonders happened at the same moment. One was that the voice of Aslan was suddenly joined by other voices. More voices than you could possibly count. They were in harmony with it, but fire higher up in the scale, cold, tingling, silver voices. The second wonder was that the blackness over, overhead all at once was blazing with stars. They didn't come out gently one by one as they do on a summer evening. One moment there had been nothing but darkness. The next moment, a thousand, a thousand points of light leaped out. Single stars, constellations, and planets, brighter and bigger than any in our world. There were no clouds. The new stars and the new voices began exactly at the same time. If you had seen and heard it, you would have felt quite certain that it was the stars themselves which were singing and that it was the very first voice, the deep one, which made them appear and made them sing. What an amazing picture of just God singing, bringing everything into creation. I mean, we all need something to create something else. But God himself creates something out of nothing. God alone has the power to do that. The psalmist understood that God was powerful, that He utters His voice and the earth melts, but He also makes wars cease to the end of the earth. God is the only one that truly gives peace. He gives peace. It's not by negotiation, compromise, or treaties whereby we have peace, but it is only through Christ. He Himself is our peace. And God is the only one who makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He can stop them all in a heartbeat. He just says, cease. And they can. And they will. And while God will do so at the end of time after the defeat of Satan and his minions, so often, though, we think of peace as the absence of conflict. M.R. DeHaan, the great Bible teacher, told of two artists who determined to paint pictures depicting perfect peace. The first artist painted a young boy rowing across a peaceful lake, not so much as a ripple disturbed the water's surface. The second artist took an entirely different approach. He uh, painted a raging waterfall with winds whipping the spray violently about. And overlooking the raging torrent was a bird's nest built on a branch overhanging the cascade. The mother bird sat peacefully far above the roaring falls. Real peace is not the absence of turmoil, but in rising above it. Turning to God in the midst of trial is the surest way to confidence, peace, and rest, no matter what storms may rage. Now, some believe that we can have peace in other different different ways. Whatever is right for you is what our world says. Whatever is good for you. Bonhoeffer disagreed. As he said at the beginning of World War II, when he was a 28-year-old theologian, he was speaking out against Hitler as Hitler was just getting into power. He said this, There is no way to peace along the way of safety. For peace must be dared. It is itself the great venture and can never be safe. Peace is the opposite of security. To demand guarantees, it is to want to protect oneself. Peace means giving oneself completely to God's commandment, wanting no security, but in faith and obedience, laying the destiny of the nations in the hand of Almighty God. Not trying to direct it for our selfish purposes. Battles are won, not with weapons, but with God. They are won when the way leads to the cross. God can give you peace to either end your circumstance or give you the grace to bear up underneath it. I think of Joseph and all that he endured in the Old Testament. Here the Bible says of Joseph that God was in the midst or God was with him in the midst of trial. I I think when God is with him, I think that he in my time I think that God just doesn't want us to go through those type of things in my flesh But God is saying, no, no, no. I will be with you in the midst of it to show myself as you suffer on His behalf. That's amazing. We don't see Joseph fretting or accusing even as he's sold into slavery by his brothers, even as he works as a servant, accused of a crime that he didn't commit, imprisoned without a trial. And as he's suffering in prison for the time that he is, you don't see him fretting or accusing or wiltering under the pressure, but continually trusting in God. And God vindicates him in the end. God gives us peace, but he is also our protector. Look at verse 9. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Now the bow and arrow in ancient warfare was what you shot from far away. It was kind of like our long-range missiles. You would shoot them far away, and it would many different arrows would be shot, hoping to find uh, its target somewhere there. That was far away. The spear, though, you had to get closer in order to throw it at an individual, and still more with the chariots of fire. So you have far, close, closest. And here he's saying that God can take all of those out in a moment. He can, he can break the bow that shoots that arrow from a far distance that's going to come against you. That he can shatter and break that spear that is coming closer to you. And even that chariot, that ancient tank that is staring you in the face, he burns it with fire. That God does that on your behalf. He is your protector. When God is with us, nothing can happen without his allowance. Now, do you feel that God is your protector? Do you feel that God is looking out for you, that he wants to help you in your situation in which you find yourself today? in your relationship, at your job, at your school, in your family, with your family, friends, and co-workers. Quit disbelieving and trust in God. Ask God to be, to be your helper, to be your protector. And there are times when God works in proportion to our faith. Do you realize that? According to your faith, so be it. There are times when God operates in the midst of our unbelief, but there are, more often than not, you see Jesus saying, according to your faith, let it be. Do you believe, do you trust in God in the midst of your circumstance? Or are you like Peter when he's walking on water? It was amazing, but then you see the the waves of circumstance cloud in that you begin to sink. When you keep your eye on Jesus, you're not going to sink. Hold fast. Keep your eye upon Him. As Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you would see the glory of God? Or according to your faith, let it be to you. Trust in God and know that if God is for you when you run and cling to Him, then no one can stand against you. That's why He says, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations, I will be exalted in the earth. God wants you to relax. Relax. Because God rules, God reigns, God is in charge. It may not seem like it at times when we see everything going on uh, in the news, and the circumstances, and we hear about tragedy after tragedy, turmoil after turmoil. When we experience tribulation at our workplace or at our school or even in our family, when we're going through these pains and persecutions of life, we have to stop and realize, wait a minute, God is in charge. He's not going to allow anything to happen to me that I can't have the grace to bear up underneath. Nothing in life are we going to face that He won't give us the grace to bear up underneath it. God is in charge. I think about Moses when God commissioned him to lead the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt to the Promised Land. It was an amazing task. It was standing against the most powerful nation in the entire world. And God lays the task before him, and Moses protests, saying that he wasn't eloquent or quick-witted enough to do it. Angered at his lack of faith, God reminds Moses that it is not about his ability, but God's. And it is God alone that will make it to be brought about. And through a series of questions, God reminds him that it is He alone who made and fashioned man. And it is God alone who will bring this task to completion. He says, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute, or deaf, or seeing, or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? He then says, now therefore go and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. God is the one who rules. He is the creator. He is the God of the universe. He is the one who says, be still and know that I am God. There is no other. He is without peer. There is no other God. Not in all the world. No matter what philosophy we might trust, no matter what religion we might look to, there is only one God. And He has revealed Himself through Jesus Christ. There is no other hope for man. There is no other philosophy that can exalt itself, that make deliverance. Only God himself brings about salvation. And only God himself is the one that we can cling to and find refuge in our time of need. There is no other. You can try to apply whatever earthly philosophy you want, but it will fail. It will fail. It will falter. You will not find God in the midst of it except what He has revealed to us through His Word. Only God is God. He is the one and only God. There is no place else we can turn whereby we will receive divine resources except from the Lord. Men and women can turn to others, check their horoscope, keeping watch on all the news, and get more and more down. Only God is the anchor and the unsinkable ship. He is the only one who will not fail. He will be exalted among the nations, and He will be exalted among the earth. See, many of us turn to the titanics of life, busying ourselves rearranging deck chairs as it's sinking, rather than trusting in the God who is unsinkable. That no matter what storm, no matter what trial, no matter what obstacle comes His way, He blows through it. He is the Lord of the nations. He is without peer. But He is also worthy of praise. He will be exalted in every nation. The Bible is clear in the New Testament that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth to declare that Jesus is Lord. That there is a day of judgment coming. We don't talk about that in our world today. But the Bible is clear that man is destined to die once and then face judgment. It is inescapable. You can try to believe what you want and try to create your own different reality, but it will all fail at the face of death. It will falter. And then you will enter into the presence of Him who is, the creator of everything that ever was, is, and will be, the maker of the heavens and the earth, the one who hung the planets and the stars into place, the one who, in whom all the mysteries of the Godhead are found. And we will bow and give an account for our lives on what we did in the flesh good or bad did you trust in christ and did you tell other people about him and if you're an individual here today that is not yet trusted in christ then you will go off to hell it's a real place there is all of this talk within our society today about erasing hell that hell does not exist it's a lie and it's from the pit of hell Satan doesn't want you to think about it. And, and let's get over this notion once and for all that Satan is in charge in hell. It's not a far side cartoon where Satan is the one walking around in charge. Hell was created to house and imprison him. Right. Amen. That's what it was created for. And for those that follow him and he seeks to deceive the nations and blind the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the glory of God and who he is. Desiring us, just as He did with Adam and Eve, to believe a lie rather than the truth of who He is. God has revealed Himself through the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. There is only one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. He is the one who went to the cross for your sins and mine, that paid the price for your sins, and that rose again that we might be justified or declared holy and righteous in God's sight by our faith and trust in Him. There is no other way. It is only by repenting and believing in Jesus Christ that we have true and everlasting life. And it is only in Him that we can have the peace that transcends all understanding. He is the one who can help us. He is the God of the universe, the exact imprint of the Father, and He is worthy of our praise. Oswald Chambers, the great devotional writer who wrote My Utmost for His Highest, was a painter as well as a Bible teacher and devotional writer. And one day, he was sitting on his porch painting when his wife, Biddy, came out expressing her concern over a woman who was dying of tuberculosis. She said, Oswald, what is God going to do? In the midst of this crisis, what is God going to do? In the midst of this difficulty, what is God going to do? What is God going to do? I don't know. And what was his response? He said, it doesn't matter what God does. It's who God is that I'm concerned with. He knew that God was worthy of praise no matter what happened in the situation. And he was echoing the words of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the book of Daniel. When they were going to be put into the fiery furnace because they refused to bow down and worship the statue of the king, they said, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter about whether or not they would bow down and worship his image he sa- they said, if this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and He will deliver us out of your hand, O King. But if not, be it known to you, O King, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Sometimes God delivers, and sometimes God wants to accomplish a greater purpose than we can imagine by having us glorify Himself within the midst of that circumstance. But in the midst of it, He will go through the fire with us. Remember, There were three when they were cast into the fiery furnace, and the king looked in, and there was another one there. And the king said, weren't there three cast in? But I see four walking around, and one is like the Son of Man. In other words, as we go through the fiery furnaces and trials of life, that God himself will be there with us, accompanying us in the middle of it. God will help us bear up underneath it. I think of Bonhoeffer again. He, he died on April 9, 1945, three weeks before the Allies were to free them. And he was taken outside, stripped naked, and he walked to the gallows where he was hanged. And the, the doctor who was served at Flossenburg, the concentration camp where he was, said, in the 50 years of, as, as a doctor, I have never seen anyone more submissive to the will of God. All of the inmates had encountered him. So there was no one that had more peace in the midst of that circumstance And one man, writing about him in the last few weeks of his life, he said, all others feared, and he doubted if he would have the strength to go through it. But then he realized that there was nothing in this earth that he was to be afraid of, not even death. Because he was a true servant of the Most High God, and he knew that he was stepping into the presence of the King at that moment in time. That God would be with him. God says to be still and know that I am God. All too often in our world today, we're not still. I mean, we, can, we know that we're surrounded by sound 24-7. I am as guilty as everyone else. Putting stuff in my mind. I mean, even if you go out to the restaurant, you can have surrounded by TVs. Even going to the restroom and there's TVs. I mean, be on, you can be in your car and the radio is on all the time. Or we get home and we always have to have a sound. And sometimes God says, be still and know that I am God. There's a pastor that tells his counseling philosophy that before anyone ever he sees anyone for a counseling appointment, he has them go and sit in the sanctuary for 30 minutes by themselves. No one else around. And he said, more often than not, I find that the person who sits there for 30 minutes by themselves figures out what they needed to do in a certain situation. Because they just needed to be still and be alone with God first before they ever see me. We're to run to God. Before everything else. Because God Himself is for us. He is with us. As the psalmist concludes, and he's echoing verse 7 in verse 11, he says, The Lord of hosts is with us. The Lord Saba'o. The Lord of hosts. The Lord of all of heaven. Yahweh, the great I Am. He's over everything. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Why does He say the God of Jacob? He could have been the God of Abraham. could have been the God of Isaac. Why the God of Jacob? I mean, Jacob was the founder of Israel. His name gets changed to Israel, and he's the father of the nation, the 12 tribes of Israel. But I believe that he says the God of Jacob because Jacob was a little bit like us. I mean, Jacob messed up. Even his name means deceiver. He deceived his father in order to steal the blessing from his brother. He he offered to make his brother some food and took his birthright away from him. I mean, he deceived his, his future father-in-law. I mean, he, he was a man who was deceptive, and he messed up quite a bit. But, you know, God worked with him, even though he, he, was, he messed up. I think God works with us when we mess up. God is there when we trip and fall. He's there to reach out a hand when we're stumbling. Just as Peter, when he was sinking under the circumstances, and he started to sink, and he reached up and he said, Lord, save me! And Jesus out, reaches out his hand. Even when we take our eyes off the Savior, He's there to say, here. I'm here. Are you going to put out your hand to reach for me? Even now as you're sinking? God is for us. The Lord Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Selah. What does that mean, Selah? I mean, people want to say, what does it mean? But it means, as we said before, pause and think, rest, think about what's being said. God is saying here, the Lord of hosts is with us. Who is he with? He's with his people. God is with his people. That he is accessible, he's for us, he's there an ever-present help in time of need, he is our refuge, he reminds us of our redemption, he's placed his spirit within us, he's given his saints to be with us, and he will be with us until the end of time. Even as Bonhoeffer was walking to the gallows, and these different Nazis were laughing around him, God would prove Himself to be His vindicator. His vindicator. God is with His people. When God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for you and with you, then you need not fear. Even though the earth gives way and falls into the heart of the sea, He will bear you up, help you and encourage you and strengthen you. But you must go to Him. You must run to Him. You must ask Him for help. You must call on Him. When the storms come, you must call on Him. Do you need Him right now? Do you believe in Him? Are you trusting in Him? Is your faith focused on Him? Are you running to Him for refuge? Or are you running to the power lines and the trees? The exact places you're not to go to. Run to Him. Have you repented of your sin and invited Him into your life? Maybe you're not running to Him because you don't know Him. But if, if you believe in Him, if you trust in Him that He died on the cross for your sins then you can call unto Him, and then He will be your Lord, and you can run to Him in your time of need. Don't wait. Do so now. God desires to give you Himself and be an advocate on your behalf, but will only do so when we place our faith and trust in Him. Don't wait. Do it today. God is faithful, and He will save. Let's pray. Father, we come into Your presence grateful at who You are and what You've done. We're grateful for what You have shown us within Your Word, that You are the ever-present help in time of trouble. Lord, when the storms of life roll in and the sirens go off, may we run to you for refuge. May we not run to those things that can't protect us, can't give us strength, but may we run to you alone. And that is to ultimately to your Son, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, through whom you have revealed yourself and through whom we have redemption, forgiveness of sins, and eternal life saved from the wrath of God. Lord, if there's someone here today who doesn't know who you are, I pray that your Holy Spirit might be, might draw their heart to yourself. That you might forgive them of their sin. But first of all, Lord, convict them that they might see their need of his Savior. And Lord, help them to call on you and say, I believe. Help my unbelief. And Lord, then you will save. You will forgive them of their sin. You will transform them and make them into vessels through whom you will receive great glory and they will increase in joy. Lord, may your name be glorified in us as a body as we each go our separate ways this week, week, Lord. And may when the storms of life come, may we run and find refuge in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.